0: Well, if you would take out your Bibles, Uh, we are continuing our study through the book of Numbers. We're in Numbers chapter 19 today, but to begin our time together, I'm actually going to read from the book of Hebrews. I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14 to to begin our time together. So if you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, I'm going to read from Hebrews 9, and then we will look at... uh, Numbers chapter 19 together. Hear the word of Christ to us today. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the By his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Oh, God, we thank you today for the opportunity to worship. God, we thank you for the opportunity to say, only your blood is enough, O Christ. Oh, God, we come today not offering the blood of an animal, not offering the blood of a goat, not trying in and of ourselves to make us clean, but we come pleading and trusting and clinging to the very blood of Christ as our only hope, the life of Christ, crushed, bruised, beaten, separated from your goodness for a time so that he might be resurrected on our behalf. God, it is our only hope. And I pray today as we look at your word, as we open up the pages of scripture, we would be amazed at what you have done for us. We would be in awe of the gospel. And it would change our lives, our families, our work. It would change our faith. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. The horrendous... Peruvian music, which Peruvian music, in my opinion, is horrendous. It's awful. Drums, horns just sort of blaring out, out of time, out of sync, made the drunken Peruvians I was walking with less tolerable with each step. We walked to a cemetery up a hill in the Andes Mountains, outside of their village, as they staggered, as many of them tried to work up some sort of sorrow that you realized wasn't even there, and they began to scream, and they began to try to make themselves cry, because this funeral to so many was just another opportunity to drink, just another opportunity to get drunk. And as we walked and that music clanged and banged and sort of screeched out, I I noticed many as they, they staggered, just sort of trying, trying to figure out what was going on. Ahead of this ragtag parade was a group of men carrying a coffin, carrying a casket that was made out of material just a little bit better than cardboard. And they carried in this casket a man who just a few days earlier had fallen off the top of a mountain and crushed his skull. And what made things so awkward and even uh, hard to bear was the fact that on the top of this casket was a glass piece where you could see this man and his bandaged head. And it was an awkward scene. It was a weird scene as I walked and tried to make sense out of it. There's a time during this funeral where this casket was set before us and every person from the village who knew the man walked by the casket, looked into this glass piece, offered some sort of blessing and then walked out to take another drink. And as I stood there with this drunken herd of people, me and our missionary, Eric Turner, as he tried to interpret to me what all was going on, what all they were saying, I realized death, the reality of death was settling in. And they were trying their best to numb the experience. And then finally, they took this ragtag coffin shoved it in a block of concrete and began to brick up the outside as the man's daughter began to scream he was a great father he was a great father and then many began to yell in response to her he's still alive he's still alive as we stood there over a casket that declared he was not still alive And then the priest of the village offered some sort of blessing, trying to make the people feel better. It was a hopeless, helpless situation. But it's one that happens in every culture. It's one that happens in every one of our lives. Through the drunkenness, through the music, through the blessings, through through the drama, they were trying to make sense of death and they couldn't do it. Now, in our culture, it's a little more sanitized. We know that the, the funeral home industry is that. It's an industry. And if you've ever had a loved one die and you've sat down with those folks, you realize that it is an industry. Caskets, coffins, plots, it's all very, very expensive. And at our funerals, the, the music is a little bit better. The, the, the music is a little bit more tolerable. But we stand around and we try to make sense of death. And we talk about the flowers. And we talk about the person. We say things like, well, he always had a smile on his face. He was a good man. And maybe there's not a lot of screaming all the time. Maybe there's not a lot of drama. But the reality is we do the same thing. It just looks different. We try to suppress Death. We try to push it away. We try to color it. We try to make it into something it's not because, in those moments when we stare into a $10,000 casket or a $10 casket, we realize we are helpless. We're helpless. And there's no money, and there's no music, and there's no blessing from a man or from a people that can keep that happening to us or our loved ones. When we come to Numbers 19, this is exactly what God is proving to the people of Israel. He is basically saying to them, if you want to choose life without me, this is what you get, death. And this choice began in Genesis 3 when Adam decided to believe the lie of the serpent and disbelieve God. He was in a place full of life, full of goodness. The presence of God was there with him. And he made a choice to walk from this place of life to a place of death. And it's a place every one of us live in in this moment. Even in our hearts right now. If we had it our way, we would choose death over life. We would choose to be king. We would choose to have it our way. And the Bible describes that as spiritual death, separating ourselves from God. And at this moment, those apart from Christ wait for an eternal death in hell, total separation from God forever. A place of death. And God is proving to Israel that you want to separate from me, you want to be a God in and of yourself. This is what you get death. This is what sin leads to. And if you walked with Israel in the wilderness, you knew it to be true. You saw the carnage of rebellion all around, you saw 15,000 people dead. Leaders, people set apart to be priests who've been wiped out, Nadab and Abihu, who've been dragged from the tabernacle outside. The reality of death was all around. And so, what's the solution? Numbers 19 God gives his people a glimpse into what's the solution for death is, but they must realize it's not in and of themselves. You can't stop it in and of yourself because you are impure. Notice 19 verse one. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron saying, again, we see this mediation. God gives his word to Moses. He gives his word to Aaron here. They're both listed. And there's a reason for this. Aaron will need this same kind of purification that's offered to the people. And Moses delivers this word. This is the statute of the law of the Lord. The Lord has commanded, tell the people of Israel to bring to you a red heifer without defect. Now, this would have been a cow, a young cow without blemish. Notice the text says, and on which a yoke has never come. A cow, young, unused, clean, And as we've seen throughout history, this would have been something uncommon in Israel. It's not as though they have a bunch of red cows running around. But this is the solution for your sin. This is the solution that will purify you as we'll see from death. Notice verse 3. And you shall give it to Eleazar, the priest. Now, who is this? We know Nadab and Abihu were Aaron's sons. But in Leviticus chapter 10, what's happened to them? They've been wiped out by God because they tried to offer strange fire to God. And so this is the next in line. Aaron's son, Eleazar. And this whole procedure is given to him to keep Aaron pure, as we will see. Notice. And it shall be taken outside the camp. Notice as the text continues, outside the camp and slaughtered before him. Here, this animal, this cow will bear the brunt of justice. The cow, as the people deserve to be banished from the presence of God, outside the camp, the cow will be taken out and slaughtered and justice for sin will be done on the red cow. Notice the text continues. In Eleazar, the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of the blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Here we see the issue of blood, which is symbolic of life, and it is sprinkled in front of the tent to remind the people: you deserve to be banished from the presence of God, and the only way back in is if there is a life taken, if blood is shed. You deserve this. This is just for your sin. Notice he sprinkles it seven times. The the seven uh, indicates perfection. This is the only way. This is the only thing that will be enough for you to be allowed into the tent of meeting to worship God. Notice the text continues. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, its blood with its dung shall be burned. And here we have a sign of what the people deserve as they walk around and they see death. And just a few chapters ago, death has been so real to them as people have been swallowed by the ground and they're consumed. And he says, this is what you deserve. Take a cow outside the camp, slaughter it, sprinkle its blood, and burn it till there's only ashes left. This is what you deserve. This is what justice would be for you. Notice the text continues... And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn. Here we see the symbolism of death, and we see this hyssop plant which was used to to wipe the blood on the doorpost in Egypt at Passover when God delivered his people here. We see all the symbolism here of blood. You have the scarlet yarn, you have the cedar wood, which is red, and notice the text continues: Throw these things into the burning fire. With with the heifer this issue of blood Uh, in the bible sin is symbolized by the color red and here what god is saying is the only way your sin can be wiped out covered up is if there is the issue of blood a blood covering now that's important It's important that an animal, a heifer die and there be bloodshed, a goat as we see the sacrificial system, a lamb that would be slaughtered. And I know we have veterinarians and I know we have people who are so caught up into this sort of animal culture in our, not just the veterinarians, they realize that, that those are just animals. But we live in a culture where we talk about adoption and we talk about animals like they're our third, fourth kids. We have the picture on the back of our van. Now, most of you aren't walking out to your trees talking to them like you are their children. Some of you might. I have some neighbors that do that. <laughs> but but the, the important indication here is that this was a life taken. If God just said, chop that tree down and burn it, It wouldn't have meant anything to the people. But he's saying a life, blood, has to be taken. And the only way you can enter my presence, if it's another life, blood is shed. Life for life in my presence. Notice the text continues. Verse 7. Then the priest. Could someone turn that fan another way? Because I keep ending up in two, two or three chapters over. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. What's going on here? The priest who carries out this procedure becomes unclean by the procedure. Notice he is to take a bath. Notice he is to wash his clothes. And we begin to think, well, this is God's set-apart leader. This is the one who oversees the sacrificial system, which makes the people clean. And yet he has become unclean. And notice, afterward, he may come into the camp. The one who carries out the procedure must stay out of the camp until he is clean. Notice, text continues, and the priest shall be unclean until evening. Verse 8. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water, and he shall be unclean until evening. Notice verse 9. And the man who is clean shall gather the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside of the camp in a clean place. This whole procedure is to take take place outside the camp, and the ashes of the heifer are to remain outside the camp. Remember again, this is what you deserve you deserve to be left in ashes outside of the presence of God. Totally consumed, totally wiped out. Throughout the Bible, we see this often. We see this in the book of, in the book of Jonah as the, the word of God, the word of the prophets come forth. And, and what do the people so often do? They sit around in what? Sackcloth and ashes. It's a sign of Repentance. We deserve the wrath of God and the one who has touched the animal that has been consumed by the wrath of God. Notice the text continues. He deposited outside of the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for water, for pure impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. These ashes will be eventually be mixed with water to keep the people pure, to allow the people to enter again into the camp, enter again into the presence of God for worship. But notice verse 10. The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statue for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. The only way you can keep yourself pure The only way you can overcome the curse of death with the ability to enter again into the presence of God is to go through this procedure, to make sure there are ashes of this cow that are laying around that you can mix with water, that you can purify yourself with. But notice what happens. The one who prepares this sacrifice, the one who takes part in this procedure, is left unclean. This will happen over and over and over again in their history. The priest will go out and take part in this act over and over to remind them, this is what you deserve. But in making the people pure, he is left impure. You see the scandal there? Because so often we think, well, if I'm serving others, that's going to make me pure before God. That's going to gain me acceptance before God. Some of you came in here today and that's what you think. I came in here today and I've shook hands and I've served others and, and, and I've been involved in ministry. I've actually shared the gospel with people. Surely that is gaining me access into the presence of God. But notice the priest has to remain outside of the presence of God. Our ministry of the gospel doesn't change our status as sinners. It only makes our status more obvious. And as the priest walked out and oversaw this whole process, he wasn't thinking, this is making me pure. Doing this as a priest, he was thinking, that's what I deserve. I'm a sinner. I deserve to be consumed. And I wonder as you minister to those who need the gospel, if you ever have the same thoughts. As you look across the table into the eyes of one who you would say right now the wrath of God is bearing down. They are apart from Christ. They will spend eternity without Jesus under his wrath. As you look into their eyes, is there ever in your gut the feeling that's where I deserve to be sitting Or have you begun to believe because you are a part of this whole thing called the church and you hold the gospel in your hands that you have become something less than a sinner? Here, the priest would realize, I am still impure. I still need the blood. I still need the ashes. Until evening, he would sit outside of the camp and reflect on it. Notice God is teaching us here, here the, what we've talked about so often, the issue in Romans 3.23. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have rebelled against God. We are separated from God. And falling short of the glory of God means you don't have the power to fix it. You don't. You walk around in a world cursed by death. And you take antibiotics for sinus infections. And you walk around in a world cursed by death. And you you run up your steps and you feel a little bit winded. And you realize this body is frail. This body is getting old. And you stand around at funeral homes. And you realize you are in a world cursed by death. And yet you fall short of the glory of God. You can't with your hands grab death and change it. You can't. You don't have the power. And God is teaching you that day after day after day. If you are not a sinner, you're the only exception here today. We all deserve death. We all deserve the judgment for our sin. And yet none of us can fix it. And yet here as we think about this priest outside of the camp taking part in this procedure and and he would smell the smoke and he would look on the disgusting display of death before him we realize that there is one who walked and he talked in this world of death and not only that, he touched death. He touched eyes that couldn't see. He grabbed legs that couldn't move, that were frozen and paralyzed, and they began to move, and they began to walk, and they began to hold weight. He touched death with his own hands. He walked outside of his own city in villages that people would stand around and say, Why is he with those people? Why is he drinking with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes? Why is he walking with those people and the religious folks were scandalized? Why? You're not supposed to touch death and remain pure. But he's the only one who had the power. And he would turn to such folks and say, you haven't seen anything yet. Because it's not as though I'm just touching death His body was cursed as death on the cross. His body was wrapped in death material. His body was placed in a place of death in a ground. And he got up and walked out to say, I'm the only one who has power over death. And because he's the only one who has power over death, he's your only hope. But why is he the only one who has power over death? Because he never sinned. The priest realized, that's what I deserve. As Jesus hung on the cross, he was doing it because that's what you deserve. And he is your only hope to overcome death because he is the only one without sin. He is the only one who doesn't deserve death. Here the priests are impure purifiers because they're sinners. And they can't make the people pure in and of themselves. But notice impure worshipers as we continue verse 11. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be clean, unclean seven days. If you touch a corpse, you can't. What does it mean to be unclean? You can't worship for seven days. You can't come near to the presence and glory of God for seven days. You can't gather around your only hope and recognize the presence and promise of God with you for seven days. That would have been a big deal to them. Notice the text continues. He shall cleanse himself with water on the third day and on the seventh day and, be so, and so be clean. But if he doesn't cleanse himself on the third and seventh day, he will not be clean. Here, there's a solution. You want to worship God again? You want to gather with the people again? You cleanse yourself with the water uh, of the ashes here, as we'll see. This is the way you cleanse yourself. This is the way you have access to God. By acknowledging another's been sacrificed, another's been burned, consumed. That's the only way to be clean. But if you don't, if he does not cleanse himself on the third and seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches a dead body... The body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself. Notice it gets intense here. Verse 13, he defiles the temple. If you just say, Well, this, you know, I don't believe in magic potions and this little, you know, bottle of ashes and and running water, that's not a big deal. I don't really have to go through that. You defile the temple. You reject the solution that God has offered for your sin. And the word here is literally, you bore a hole in it. You make unclean the place where the presence of God rests. Notice, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person, notice the result of this. He shall be cut off from Israel. And we're thinking, just, it's just a bottle of ashes, Well, what's the big deal? And now he is banned from the people of Israel because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. He wants to emphasize. It's not that he is defiling the temple because he's a sinner. Because that's who they all were. That's who we are. He is defiling the temple because he's rejecting the solution for his sin. And this is why in the context of the church we have to take sin seriously. There must be accountability in my own life. Folks walking with me, we talked about yesterday at our men's breakfast, these fight clubs, men who are stepping in my life, in your life, who are making sure you are believing the gospel and applying the gospel, trying to lead your family. We have to have that. We can never live under the assumption that because we've said a, said a prayer, because we walked an aisle and we've attended church a few times, that somehow now we are void of sin. And when we choose to repent, when we choose to constantly reject the solution for our sin, there's the issue of church discipline. Folks are cut off from the church, cut off from fellowship talked to someone a few weeks ago and they said, you Baptists, you, you're starting to in church discipline again and that's real scary. And I don't know if that's totally true. There are a few churches that talk about church discipline. But the issue is if you live in constant habitual sin and you don't give a rip about Christ, you don't give a rip about the church, then you are taken off the church rolls In an act of the church. And some of you go, whoa, I didn't know. This is, the songs here didn't, you know, the music here today, it seemed more relevant and more contemporary. And now they're going old school, 1950s discipline. This sounds insane. But it's an issue of grace and mercy. It's not an issue of we're right, you're wrong. The issue is we're all wrong. And the issue is we all need the solution for our sins. And when you walk in a way that constantly rejects the solution for your sin, you need people in your life saying, don't walk away from Jesus. Don't walk away from the gospel. That's the last thing we want to see happen in your life. You need the local church in your life constantly doing that, constantly reminding you of Jesus and the solution for your sin. See, they weren't cut off because they were unclean. They were cut off because they rejected the solution to become clean in the presence of God. We must take sin seriously also because we can't talk about turning from sin when we act like we don't care about sin. That makes the gospel unintelligent to the world around us. If we can live however we want to as a church and misrepresent the gospel, then what makes us different and what makes the gospel true? Notice the text continues. He shall cleanse himself with the water. Whoever touches the dead body, sorry, my page didn't flip that time. That was just me. Verse 14, this is the law when someone dies in a tent. So it gets even more detailed here. There's the summary. You can't come and you can't worship God if you don't accept the solution for your sin. And then here, here's why you need it. It's not generic anymore. He concretizes the truth that he's presenting here. The law, when someone dies in a tent, we're traveling through the wilderness. There are going to be people who die in their tent, die at home. Remember the promise, a whole generation is going to die in the wilderness. What do we do when this happens? There's a whole generation that's about to die off. How are we going to remain clean Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for a whole week. You mean to tell me if my uncle just kills over? We have to have a funeral for him. I can't worship for a whole nother week. I remain unclean for seven days. Notice verse 15. And every open vessel that is not covered or fastened on it is unclean. He's describing the pervasiveness of death. You walk into that tent and you smell it and you see it and it's all around. It's pervasive. You can't get your hands on it. And so if your Tupperware it is left open, it's unclean. Break it. Get rid of it. Call Pampered Shelf. Get another one. It's unclean. Notice, continues. Whoever in the open field touches someone who is killed with a sword. You're going to march into areas and there's going to be war and and there's going to be fights and there's going to be battles. Someone gets killed and you touch them. You're now unclean. And anyone who died naturally, you walk up on someone who's out tending their flock and they've died and you have to take them back to their family. Now you're unclean or touches a human bone Or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. You walk up on the grave of the Canaanites, family, stones out, you walk across it, pick up a bone, you're unclean. Notice the text continues, for the unclean they shall make ashes, of the burnt sin offering, of this purification offering that's been offered. You shall take some of the ashes and fresh water, running water, pure water, and it shall be added in a vessel. So how in all of those moments do you make yourself clean? Death's all around. You can't escape it. Well, only through the blood, only through the ashes, only through the purification of another. And you shall take the clean person, take the hyssop and dip it in water and sprinkle it on the tent and all of its furnishings on, on the persons who were there and whoever touched the bone and slain or the dead or the grave. So you have to call your, your, your guest who've been over that week. Did you touch that bowl? Were you in the house when that happened? Well, you got to come over and we got to purify you. It was this constant procedure. Do, do you sort of feel the paranoia here? we we put death over in a box death was a part of their life it was all around and now staying pure from death was all around it was a part of their life notice and the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and the seventh day same procedure and on the seventh day he shall cleanse himself and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and at the evening he shall be clean some of you are like this is just too much This is insane. I'm glad this is in the Old Testament. But imagine again, a whole generation is promised to die in the wilderness. This is something they could not escape. They didn't have trash cans to put the dead raccoon in and give their garbage man a surprise when he dumps it out in the back of his truck. Someone here may or may have not done that. They didn't... They saw these things and it freaked them out. We're unclean. We can't worship for seven days. And you, can you imagine in their lives how often that happened? Can you imagine the paranoia that went with them? But here again, he is given a solution. Everywhere you go, you will have a solution to become clean. Through the blood and ashes of another to be applied to your life. He's teaching them something here. Death isn't something you just come in contact with in the temple. And the solution for death is not just something you need on a Saturday morning in worship at the tabernacle or for us on a Sunday morning at church. The gospel is something you need every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month of your life. And if you are like me and you wake up and you realize the effects of death are all around, you see a world and you see the hopelessness and you see winter coming and you are reminded again that we live in a world separated from God, but you look into the mirror every night and you stare one who is separating himself from God. And what is your only hope? i got to call the pastor I gotta walk the aisle again. I gotta rededicate my life again. No, in that moment you look into the eyes of someone who needs the gospel right there. And the glorious thing about the gospel is that it applies to every situation. So as you walk in a world that is cursed and haunted by death, you walk and as Paul describes, in these tents that are failing, that are withering, that are dying. In these tents, you have the glory of God. You have the solution for everything. So you walk into the hospital and you see the cords and you hear the heart monitor and you walk in and you stare death in the face and you weep. And like Jesus, who stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, he stomped his feet in anger at death. And you feel all of that, but you know in your gut the redemption that God has promised forever has already begun in your heart because you have Jesus. Isn't that amazing? You have something they never had, you have the gospel. Notice the text continues. If the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person again shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, since he has defiled bore holes in the sanctuary. Because the water of impurity was not thrown on him, he is unclean. And it shall be a statute forever with them. The one who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes. And the one who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean to evening. And whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Do you see the repetition? What's God doing? You live in a world that death's all around. Death's all around. You're unclean. You will be unclean if you reject me. You will be unclean if you reject my provision for your sin. If you do not obey me, if you do not follow this statute, you will remain unclean. Some of us here, we say, This is impossible, this is overwhelming. Some of us come in here today, and we've tried to do the whole Bible reading through the year thing. Wake up every morning, read four verses, and we, fe- we do it on Monday. We get the job done on Monday. I'm going to be a good Christian this week, and we read those four verses. Tuesday, we, uh, oh, wow. Got to get up early, get the kids to school. By Friday, read the Bible through a year. I'll just start again on Monday. I'm going to church Sunday. I can get everything made right. Get back on it Monday. And you come in here and you're burned out. You may not be having to burn cows and sprinkle blood and find a hyssop plant and find cedar wood and go out and gather all. You may not have to do that, but you feel like that's what you're doing because that's the way you're pursuing God. You treat your quiet time, your time in the Word, Like the bull of a heifer, like it's going to get rid of your sin. And God is saying here, the blood of bulls and goats isn't enough. You need something more. Now, some of you come in here today and you say, if that's what God wants me to do, I got it. I got it. I know a guy out in Mississippi, he's raising red heifers, he's sending them over to Jerusalem. I'll get in contact with that guy and I will make sure my sin is pure. I will make sure that I can cover my sin if you, if that's what god wants me to do i can do it and you fool yourself into thinking you're enough to get rid of your sin and what god is saying here is you're not I'm not. The priest isn't enough. The cow's not enough. You are like your Pharisee brothers. You come around and as Jesus said, you are whitewashed tombs. You have death living inside and you are trying to NASCAR brand it from the outside and you're not getting to the heart of the matter. You have a rebellious, sinful heart. And that's why David in Psalm 51 pleaded with God after committing adultery. What did he say? Oh, with hyssop, with blood and mercy and faithfulness and the goodness of God, change my heart. Give me a clean heart. Don't take your presence from me. And it wasn't the presence in the tabernacle. It wasn't the presence of the temple. It was the presence of the spirit in his life, the anointing of God that changes you from the the inside out. Stop applying the blood of heifers to your sin and apply the gospel. The writer of Hebrews says there is one who had no sin. He tells us, look at the priest in the Old Testament. They had to deal with their own sin. That's why they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Jesus was without sin. And the sacrifice that he offered was himself for you. And like the word of God in Hebrews chapter 4 that pierces beyond joint and marrow to the deepest part of who you are. Here the writer of Hebrews says it is the blood of Christ that purifies your conscience. It goes where nothing else can go. Some of you feel that weight today. You come in here and you say, I want to change. I want to change. I want to stay. I want to stop looking at that. I want to stop being impatient. I want to be kind. I want to be merciful. I want to change. And you're trying all of these self-help strategies. If I could go get another book, if I, if I could meet with the pastor, if I, could, if I could just get seven tips to change my heart, I would do it. You can't. Except for believing and trusting in Jesus. And you're deepest part of your heart, your conscience, guilt-ridden, is transformed. And when the penalty of your sin is paid for, you can be one that goes to funerals. In the Andes Mountains of Peru, the jungles of Africa, or Richmond, Kentucky. And you can stare death in the face. And say, because of Jesus, I have a promise living inside of me. And by his own words, those who follow him will never see or taste death. Why? Because your sins in Christ have been forgiven. But today you must see a funeral. You must see yourself crucified in Christ. As you look upon the cross, there's another one who was carried outside of the camp, Hebrew says. And he was hung on a place where only trash was thrown. The place of the skull, Galgotha. And he became unclean. Not because he was unclean. He had no sin. And he was separated from God. And he screamed, why are you forsaking me? And the answer is if you would see yourself crucified in Christ today, so you would never have to be forsaken. Death is a horrible thing to look at. But through the hope of the gospel, we have a king who has crushed its head. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. And God, I pray today that it would transform our lives. God, so often we come to worship and things that are preferences and personal are used in our own hearts to push you away, the truth of the gospel. God, I pray that wouldn't happen in this room today. God, I pray that if anything has been communicated, it is that only the blood of Christ is enough. And God, I pray there would be people all over this room in these moments who trust the blood of Christ. Who give up on their own sin, their own righteousness, and they run to Christ today. God, I pray there would be people in here who believe the gospel for the first time. God, I pray that families change, lives change, careers change, and are transformed and made new by the gospel today. God, you have given us the promise that we will be raised from the dead because Jesus has died for our sins. What do we have to lose by following him? The real question is, what do we have to gain by not following him? And the answer is nothing. And I pray today that there would be people here who believe the gospel, trust Christ, follow him. Because your word has gone forth and your spirit is moving. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.